Well, it's been 20 years now, but I can still see her clucking madly at Easter time, pecking as our English literature exam approached, determined to get us through Shakespeare. The chalk would scrape across the the blackboard and she would screech, C-O-U-P-L-E-T, couplet. Couplet, Worsley. Are you listening or are you coloring in Othello? This is going to save you in the exam. For a Shakespearean couplet is the final two lines of a sonnet which summarize the whole poem. Couplets, the final two lines, are critical for they reveal everything. Well, I'll be honest, I haven't thought much about Shakespearean couplets since my whole school English exams. But just the other day, I came across another professor highlighting their importance. For in his book, The Last Words of the Executed, R.K. Elder also makes his case that when it comes to death row, the couplet often summarizes everything. For example, the criminal James Jackson's final two lines summarized a, a life of brutality. His final couplet, Warden, murder me. Let's get this party started. Likewise, in 1966, James French's final couplet revealed a life of attention-seeking until the end. How about this for a headline for tomorrow's papers, he said in the electric chair, French fries. Meanwhile, the Stanton Island killer, Thomas Grasso's final couplet summarized a life of, of overindulgence. I did not get my SpaghettiOs, I got spaghetti, I want the press to know this. And lastly, and perhaps most Shakespearean of all, in 1992, the final couplet of Robert Harris revealed a life of melancholy. You can be a king or a street sweeper, but everyone dances with the Grim Reaper. My old English teacher, Mrs. Lynn, argued that the final couplet summarized it all. R.K. Elder argues that the final lines of a man on death row reveal everything. And just for 20 minutes or so, as we turn to this this historical first century text and this famous of executions, I would like to argue the same. For you'll be glad to know that I seek not to explain every verse that we have had read to us this evening, but rather just the final couplet. The final two lines of Jesus Christ as recorded by the eyewitness John. Does Christ's final couplet reveal everything? Does his final two lines summarize the the, the whole biography? Well, as we turn to verse 28 and to that final section that Morgan just read to us, it seems uh, apparent that compared to the rest of his life, Jesus' final couplet was rather tame. At verse 28, Jesus said, I thirst. And in verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished. On the surface, it is, it is so seemingly ordinary that some conclude that these final two lines have finally revealed that, that Jesus was just an ordinary man, a dehydrated detainee on death row finally done. However, if we dig a little deeper, we actually see that that is far from the case. For let us play the English scholar for a moment and study these two lines in a bit more depth. Uh, firstly, I thirst. What does this first last line of Jesus tell us? Well, initially, 
It reminds us of the terrible suffering and the excruciating pain of Christ in his final moments. For the agony at crucifixion was far worse than than any electric chair or lethal injection. Indeed, the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine describes crucifixion in this way, quote, The starting point was to be whipped across the back and the legs with a short whip with sharp objects interwoven into the thongs. The victim was then obliged to carry their heavy cross to the place of execution. The hands and the feet of the prisoner were normally then hammered to it with six-inch iron nails. Victims could spend several days there before they died. One technique used to hasten death was to break the legs below the knee with a blunt instrument. Modern interpretation in the medical literature as to how this might work includes blood loss from the fracture site or respiratory failure from fat embolism. Respiratory failure might often ensue as a consequence of the inability to inflate the chest sufficiently due to the leg bones being shattered. Although dehydration from water deprivation in the hot sun and the anxiety of their imminent death might also be factored in. No wonder C.S. Lewis famously said that a crucifixion didn't become common in art until all those who had seen a real one died off. And so as we picture verse 28 here, and Jesus managing to force out just, just two words, one word in the original Aramaic, I thirst. We are to picture a, a sagging, bloodied body of a man as he hangs in the baking Middle Eastern sun, awaiting either his heart or his lungs to give out. And we are to recall the agonizing dehydration was just another aspect of his torture. I thirst, physically conveys a man's frantic need for water for life. And yet, I would argue that I thirst also summarizes the agony of this whole man's life. For like the final couplet, which reveals the whole poem, this line discloses that the heart of John's biography. For if we read the whole of John's gospel, we see that that, that Jesus thirsted all his days. He thirsted for the marginalized to be cared for. And he thirsted for food and water. And he thirsted for a home to lay his head. And he thirsted for a family who would not scoff at his claims. He thirsted for loyal friends in his last days, as we have read. And he thirsted for justice in his final hours. And this ungodly world never quenched such godly desires. Accordingly, my friends... He is one who is not unfamiliar with the unquenchable thirst that you feel. He was one familiar with the fear of death, one frustrated with with, with deep societal injustice, one who was poor with few earthly possessions, one who was lonely and often unloved, one who plainly knew that the depths of physical agony And so, my friend, he is one who sympathizes with your thirst this very evening. Indeed, his human suffering was proof that the divine is neither detached nor distant. The London minister, John Stott, put it like this. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? 
I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and, and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of this world. But each time, After a while, I have to turn away, and in imagination, I have to turn instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure of Christ. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us, and our sufferings become more manageable in light of all this. I thirst. The first line of Jesus' couplet reveals the whole. For Jesus, from his first breath to to his very last, reveals that, that God identifies with our suffering. And maybe, maybe that is the primary thing that some of you need to remember this Good Friday. Amid all the thirsting and, and, and aching of this past year, you may know one who sympathizes deeply to the broken here. Let me encourage you to go to the broken Son of God and to find comfort in your time of need. But for others here, for others here, maybe maybe that doesn't mean that much to you. Maybe you're someone who, who hasn't really suffered that much. Maybe the last 12 months haven't actually been that bad for you. You haven't gotten coronavirus. You quite enjoy working from home. Maybe you own shares in, in Moderna, Or perhaps you're just British and could easily go another year without hugging anybody. (laughs) Accordingly, you're not opposed to Christ and his cross. If if some people find him a a helpful psychological crutch, then that's fine. But if the truth be told, you could take or leave Jesus. Because you're here because a good friend or, or family member maybe invited you here. That the thirsty and, and the bloodied Jesus is a, is a very sad figure, but ultimately for you, he is not a very significant figure. Well, if that's you, please know that you're very welcome here. But please would you also look down with me to verse 28. After Jesus said this, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Can you see what John wants to draw our attention to? That there is something else about this couplet which, which summarizes the whole biography. There is another reason why Jesus says, I thirst. It is not only that he literally yearns for water, it is that he literally yearns to, to fulfill the scripture. In essence, in his final moments, Jesus desires to slot in the final puzzle piece of his identity jigsaw. He wants to show all that he is God's promised king the king that Israel had been waiting centuries for. You see, the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, is a collection of 39 books which essentially all look forward to this king, a promised righteous ruler who would reign over a whole world that had been ruined by evil. And in the Old Testament, there are hundreds of prophetic pictures of this promised king. And some of these pictures are a little veiled, a little blurry. Psalm 2 predicted that that, that God would install his king on his holy hill in Jerusalem. 
Such that when Jesus ascended the hill here of Calvary, verse 17, and and had the king of the Jews nailed to his wooden cross, verse 21, some could have possibly thought, is this God's king? But the other prophecies of the king coming are so clearly met here that John begins to quote them directly. We see that in verse 24, quoting Psalm 22, they have pierced my hands and feet, they divide my garments and cast lot for my clothes. Here we as readers are to be left in no doubt that Jesus is the one, the promised king. And yet, in Jesus' penultimate line, I thirst, we see something else, something almost eerily frightening. For we see Jesus' very own declaration and desire to own these predictions for himself. For, for Jesus, in his final couplet, alludes to Psalm 69, a prophecy about God's king which says, My throat is parched, my eyes grow dim, for my thirst they give me sour wine to drink. And so what happens next? When Jesus says this, look, very next verse, verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. In these two chapters that we've read tonight, there is allusion after allusion after allusion to the fact that that, that God's king is here. But in his final lines, Jesus owns it for himself. He purposely quotes Psalm 69, and he says, I thirst, and instantly there's a sour wine of the prophecy appears, and on a hyssop branch no less, the plant which was used to mark the doors with the blood of the lamb in Exodus. Couldn't the man who turned water into sweet wine have easily turned the sour wine back to water? Yes, but no. The prophecies must be fulfilled. I must reveal who I am. I must thirst and die. Can you see that though Jesus is strung up like a puppet here, he is still pulling all the strings of fulfillment. That The cross is is no accidental tragedy, no Shakespearean production gone wrong. God evidently stands as director over this critical scene in all of human history, and Jesus the King, the leading actor on the stage, delivers every line here with a willingness and a perfection. And ironically, those who stand and mock his kingship act as his mere stage crew, bringing out the props of his promised rule. Friends, maybe all these prophecies are new to you this evening. But I wonder how you might begin to explain their fulfillment. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? At the very least, as you stare at this final scene, I hope you can see here who Jesus thinks he is. And therefore, that it is not whether you find uh, Jesus as some kind of helpful life coach or, or spiritual mentor or not, but whether you are willing to surrender to who he claims to be. For he is not merely one who suffered, but one who supposed that he was the king over all. One who believed that he had and has the right to rule the life of every person in this room.
the beginning of the final couplet, I thirst. The penultimate line of a man on death row reveals the whole. Jesus is the man who, who, who suffered terribly. He is God who sympathizes with us this evening. And yet also Jesus reveals that he is Lord, that he is king over all. He is God who demands that we submit to him this evening. And yet as we return to this text and to verse 30, there is a final line. For having used the sour wine to now clear his throat, Jesus delivers the end of his couplet. Verse 30, do look down. When Jesus had finished and received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now, upon initial reading, this final line sounds nothing more than, than some kind of recognition of sporting or, or political defeat. Jesus may have perhaps thought himself as the king, but ultimately he has been outmaneuvered on the ch political chessboard, and it is finished. He, he is lost. But actually, if we study the surroundings and the root of this word, finished, we understand that actually the very opposite is true. For the word finished comes from the word telos, which means finished in the, in the sense of, of accomplished, satisfied, or completed. And so it is finished has less to do with losing, perhaps losing the, the Easter egg hunt in the morning and more to do with, with taking the, the final chocolate egg and, and, and popping it into our mouths in the afternoon and leaning back on our, on our sofa in deep satisfaction amongst all the pile of wrappers and, and declaring it is finished. A little insight into the Worsley household at Easter. But when it comes to Jesus here, what is it that is finished, satisfied, accomplished? Well, in verse 28, we understand that the much of this finishing work has to do with the, the fulfillment of the Scriptures about Jesus' kingship and, and his right to rule. So that when Jesus says, I thirst, that the last of the prophecies are, are, are now finished and, and he can die. But also, you know, the word telos has another nuance, a financial meaning at the time. For the word telos here, the word finished also meant paid, paid in advance, paid in full. Just the other day, I needed my car fixing. It was one of my first times doing this in, in America. I'm sure they probably saw me coming a mile off, and I started to talk of bonnets and boots rather than hoods and, and, and trunks. But when I explained that I had some brake issues, they helpfully sorted out all the parts uh, straight away, and so I decided to pay them in advance. At which point, a, a big, surly-looking gentleman with, with oily hands took my invoice and, and, and picked up a little uh, rubber stamp and rather aggressively, in red ink, smashed across the front, paid. And then he looked at up at me and smiled. He says, the car will be ready later. There is nothing more to pay for. Accordingly, what does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean when he says it is telos, it is paid, it is paid in advance, it is paid in full? As Jesus breathes his last, what possible transaction is going on here? What, what business deal could Jesus be doing at this hour? 
Well, the answer is a divine transaction, a business deal of heavenly proportions. For the Bible says that the wages of sin are death. That the Bible says that because God is wonderfully just, that sin, that, that, that is all wrongdoing, wrong thoughts and, and wrong words and wrong deeds, whether big or small, require God's justice. And the punishment for sin is death. But the oddity here is that Jesus committed no sin. That the vehicle of his life worked perfectly. He needed no brake repair on a mind too loose or, or a mouth too lax. When his friends deserted him, he prayed for them. When his killers mocked him, he forgave them. And when he was dying in absolute agony, his thoughts were with his mother being well taken care for. In contrast, in 1986, as he received his lethal injection, the robber and murderer Charles William Bass turned to his mother and in his final couplet said, don't worry, mama, I deserve this. But Jesus could not say that to his mother, for he did no wrong. So how could he be paying for sin? Well, the answer, my friend, is that he was paying just as he taught for yours and mine. The final couplet summarizes everything about his life. The final lines of the man on death row reveal it all. We deserved death, but Jesus paid the price. And with his death on our invoice of life, it does not need to be paid again. It is paid in advance. It is paid in full. Such that Jesus' final line in his last moments of despair might be in our every moment when we despair at ourselves. For his last words remind us that if we unite to him in faith, his words may be our words. His wages may be our wages. His payment may be our payment. His punishment may be our punishment. His execution, our execution. And so, friends, I pray that you might leave this place tonight with the sun set on your sins forever with Jesus paid it all ringing in your ears. For if you turn to Christ, submit to him as king, you may leave this Good Friday debt-free, knowing that you cannot be loved by God anymore, nor loved by him any less. I don't mean to be rude, but let me ask you, do you not need that? Do you not need that? Friends, let me tell you from personal experience, it is a glorious thing. It is a glorious thing to trust in Christ. For you do not have to spend the rest of your life in, in empty religious effort, in a pathetic attempt to be good enough to stand before a God who hates wrong this much. You no longer have to spend all your Easter's in hiding, fooling yourself that you don't have much of a debt. You don't have to spend another sleepless night like one with an overwhelming credit card payment tossing and turning in your most honest hours because of all your anger and aggressiveness and gossip and greed and, and sexual immorality and selfishness and petulance with those you live with an unbearable pride. Because of the cross, it is done. It is over. It is paid. It is finished. 
it is finished was the cry. And his cry may be yours this evening. And so, my friend, what will be your final couplet? What two lines could summarize your whole life? The chorus of our final song this evening would not be bad ones to choose. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Friends, we're going to stand and sing that song in just a moment. But before we do, we're going to pray. As you can see from the back of your service sheets, I'm going to use an old English prayer, which whether you've come to accept Christ or not is a prayer that hopefully you can follow along with. For essentially, it asks God to, to help us to see everything that happened at the cross. And so will you pray with me and feel free to follow along? My Father, enlarge my heart. Warm my affections. Open my lips. Supply the words that proclaim. Love shines at Calvary. For there grace removes my burdens and heaps them on thy son, made a transgressor, a curse and sin for me. There the sword of thy justice smote the man thy fellow. There thy infinite attributes were magnified and infinite atonement was made. There infinite punishment was due. And infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy cast off that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed. Wounded that I might be healed. A thirst that I might drink. Tormented that I might be comforted. Made a shame that I might inherit glory enter darkness that I might have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless song, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experienced reproach that I might receive welcome, closed his eyes in death that I might gaze upon unclouded brightness, expired that I might live forever. O Father, who spared not thine only Son, that thou mightest spare me all this transfer thy love designed and accomplished. Help me to adore thee by thy lips and life. Oh, that my every breath might be ecstatic praise, my every step buoyant with delight as I see my enemies crushed, Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed, sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's gates closed, heaven's portal open. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort and save. My Father, enlarge my heart, Warm my affections, open my lips, supply words that proclaim love shines at Calvary. Amen.